Matthew chapter 14, beginning of verse 13, says, Now when Jesus heard this, and that was referring to the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. One of the things that I liked doing in Seattle back when we lived there, we liked to walk down along the seafront and the, the wharf area there. And we liked to eat at some place like Ivers or, or the Crab Pot. Or There's all kinds of good food down in that area. In fact, every year in Seattle they have something called the Bite of Seattle where you go down there and for I don't remember how long it is at least a day maybe more and they have all these different vendors with all these different kinds of foods and and you just kind of go down and 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 sample different kinds of foods eat different kinds of food as you walk around down there and well as we look at our passage here this morning Jesus is giving the crowds a little taste of something but he's giving them more than a taste of, of five loaves and two fishes now that's obviously the miracle that he does but in doing that he's giving them a little bit of a taste of the kingdom and the people actually recognize it because if you're to read the gospel of John you'll find out that after eating the meal where Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, Jesus understood that the crowd was going to take him by force and make him king. Now the crowd in and of themselves did not have the authority or the ability to do that, and it was not Jesus' time yet, and so he kind of gets away from them. He leaves at that point. But I think the crowd, by the, if not at the beginning of the miracle, at least by the end of it, realized that they're getting a little taste of something a lot more than bread and fish. They're getting a taste of the kingdom of God because who else could do this kind of a feast that Jesus puts on? Well, as we look at them getting a taste of the kingdom, we're going to see basically three different aspects as we look into it here this morning. And the first aspect that we look in it is the motive for the miracle. Let's, let's examine that a little bit because the Bible gives us a little indication of what was, what was the motive? Why would Jesus perform this miracle at this time? It appears that he's trying to get away from the crowds. He's just found out about John the Baptist being beheaded and he's now leaving the area and he's heading off into more desolate areas. In fact, there is a transition. This is kind of the climax of Jesus' year of popularity and it's a transition in his ministry. Because if you remember, Jesus' ministry gets broken down into basically three time periods. You have the time period of obscurity. Just call it a year of obscurity where people are saying, who is this guy? Then you have the year of popularity, which we've been looking at. And toward the end of the time period of popularity, opposition is rising up. And the leaders are becoming very violent toward him. And John the Baptist is put to death as his forerunner. And as they come toward the end of this time, he's going to enter into his year of opposition. Now, as he begins facing stronger opposition, he's going to take his disciples and go into more remote areas. So he's going more to your more rural areas. It's kind of like getting out of the cities and heading up toward Little Fork is what he's doing at this point. And he'll do that for about six months. He'll go up into more remote areas. He's going to focus more on training his 12 disciples to be the foundation of the church. Less large crowds 
because it's not his time yet. If he stays in the large crowds and the highly populated areas, he knows it's going to force an issue, and it's not time yet. But as he goes to leave the crowds, at first the crowds just follow. And that brings us to the situation that he finds himself in now. He gets off the boat and sees the crowds coming and it says that he has compassion on the crowds. In fact, that's one of his motives. I'd like to back up a little bit first with a bigger picture view and recognize that a first motive for the miracle is that of confirmation. The first motive for his miracle, this miracle and all of his other miracles is confirmation. It's confirming that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the rightful King of Israel. You see it clearly in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John refers to this miracle, as he does to many miracles, as signs. And we've talked about that before, how a sign always points to something. It has a a message. And so the miracles that Jesus did, those were signs that He's the Son of God. They confirmed that He was the Son of God. So we see the confirmation. Jesus acknowledged this also as He gave answer to some of His critics. In the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. As He's healing people, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, later feeding the 4,000, He says, the works that I'm doing, those bear witness to me. Those testify to who I am. Those confirm who He is. We see the same thing uh, referring to the apostles and the apostles' miracles that they performed as well. In Hebrews chapter 2, it looks back at those and it says that was God's way of confirming their message. The people that heard the teaching of Christ repeated it to us and along the way God confirmed that through various miracles and outworkings of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 2. So the first motive of all these miracles is to point to who Jesus is. But it's not the only motive for his miracles. He lists one in the passage. It says when he got off the boat and saw this great crowd there, it says that his heart was filled with compassion. He felt moved in heart. He felt moved inside for this group of people that had flocked to see him. Because of his compassion, it says that he healed their sick. It is because of compassion that Jesus was motivated to accomplish not only the healing of the sick, but also this miracle as well. We've seen Jesus' compassion spelled out in other places already in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 15 is a passage we're going to come up on shortly. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So this one is actually looking forward to another very similar miracle. Right now we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Matthew chapter 15 is when he's going to feed another 4,000 at a different time. And it uses the same motivation. It says that he had compassion on the crowds because they've been with him three days. They're out of food. And he doesn't want them to faint or feel weak. And so he's concerned about them and he wants to feed them. And so it's because of compassion that he feels motivated to do these things. That's just part of the outworking of the character and nature of God. So we look at James chapter 5 and verse 11, compassion is seen as an attribute of God. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's encouraging these people. If you look at the beginning of the epistle of James, he starts out writing to people that are scattered and persecuted, and he's encouraging them to take heart, to stand strong. At this point, you get to the end of the book of James, and he's continuing 
looking to encourage them along the same lines. He says, you, you look at Job. Look at all the persecution that Job went through. And what do you see in the end of Job? You see the compassion and the mercy of God and he's encouraging them hang on endure what you're going through and you will experience the same compassion this compassion is very character and attribute of God Hebrews chapter 10 says for you had compassion at this point he's encouraging the believers there they're also going through some persecution and they're being tempted to turn back go back to the old sacrificial system the old temple and offer the sacrifices because they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ and he encourages these people and says, you know what? Hang on. Stand strong. You can do it. You did it before. You just need to do that again now. And he's looking back at when they did it before. And he tells them, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he's encouraging them and saying, when people were thrown in prison, you had compassion and went and visited them, risking your own safety to meet their needs. That's supposed to be a motivating factor in our life as well. Compassion for other people. When we see other people struggle, we see other people going through hardships, it should stir something within us. It should stir some compassion within us to reach out and to be able to help other people that are going through hardships and suffering. In fact, as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. From Colossians, he tells us we need to take the old man, and just like clothing, we need to take off the old man, the us that was living in sin and self-centeredness. We need to shed that. We need to shed that old nature and put on a new nature. And he refers to it as our old man and our new man. And he says you need to put off the old man and put on the new man. And then he gives lots of examples with each character trait that he does. He says put off this, put on this. Well, one of the things that he encourages us to put on is compassion. Put on this compassionate heart, this heart that is concerned for other people, that cares for the well-being of those that are around you. You know what? When we do that, we're mirroring the compassion of Jesus Christ as he fed the 5,000. We're mirroring the compassion of God as he reached out to Job. We're, as Jesus pointed out in another place, we are showing ourselves to be sons of our Father. Because we get to so show in us a little bit of Him. Compassion was the motivation for this miracle. But not only was there compassion, there's also what I'd call cultivation. And the reason I'd call it as that is because He is trying to cultivate something in His disciples. He's, he's using this as a teaching moment. If you look at the other Gospels, you'll find that earlier in the day, Jesus starts this conversation with Philip. And He asks Philip, What would it take to feed this crowd? And Philip kind of glances over the crowd and he says, this would take more than 200 denarii. Now, denarii was an average worker's day's wages. He says, it's going to take more than 200 days' wages to just give every person in this crowd a little bit. In other words, not fill them up, not satisfy their appetite, but just to give everybody a little sample is going to cost 200 days' wages. Jesus asked that question of Philip, and that was Philip's answer earlier that day. Well, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is using this as to cultivate faith in Philip and in the other disciples. When we get up to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you know what the disciples' first response to that is? On that trip, they'd forgotten to take bread. 
And so when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven reminded them of bread. And they said, oh no, he knows we forgot the bread. Matthew chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, it says, But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they realize he's talking about their teaching, not their leaven, not their bread. In other words, Jesus intended for the disciples' faith to be cultivated, to be built up, to grow through this experience. When he fed the 5,000 and they got to collect 12 baskets of bread afterwards, they fed the 4,000, they got to collect baskets of, of bread after that, Jesus was showing them all the things that were possible, what the kingdom of heaven was like. So when they get there and they forgot to bring bread for this trip, and they think, oh no, he's going to be upset, we forgot the bread, he's... He's like, are you kidding me? Have you missed it? Should you? They're like, they're like Old Testament Israel at this time. Remember Old Testament Israel? God fed them with an amazing bread from heaven. Manna, they called it, because the word manna means what is it? They didn't even know what it was. But some amazing, miraculous bread from heaven. God fed the nation of Israel with it. But they never grew in their faith. They never grew in their trust. Any little time they got hungry, they started backbiting and complaining against God. They never realized that they could depend on Him. Well, that's what the disciples were struggling with. Jesus, using them to do it, fed 5,000 people, 4,000 people. It's not about whether you packed the bread. He expected their faith to grow from this experience. And so, as we look at this miracle, what were Jesus' reasons for doing it? Jesus, one, it was to confirm who He was. That he's, here's the Messiah right in front of you, Israel. Two, he did it out of compassion. He had concern for the needs of the people. Third, he wanted to cultivate within his disciples a stronger faith. Well, not only do we see the motives for this miracle, but we also see the manner of the miracle. Look at how it takes place. It says that as he did it, he had his disciples go out and he had the disciples uh, seat the people on the ground and divide them up into companies or into groups of hundreds and fifties. Uh, the Greek term for dividing them up literally meant uh, flower bed by flower bed. <laughs> so they were in this big grassy area, kind of like you'll see places in parks a lot of times where they have places that are kind of sectioned off and flowers all planted in there. And so what he's doing is dividing them up in sections. So they're just groups of people all over the place. So he divides them up in groups of people and then he hands out the bread to his disciples. He prays over it and a blessing upon it. And then he starts handing it out and the disciples take it out and start handing from the crowd. And it looks like it just starts to continue to multiply. I don't think that there was just all of a sudden a huge pile of bread and fish there. I think that as the disciples went out and started to hand it out, as they take a little bit out, more replaces it. And they take a little bit more out, more replaces it. And so they just keep... It's just an amazing thing. It's like the basket never gets empty. It just keeps... You reach in, there's more, there's more, there's more. You can't get rid of it fast enough. So as we look at this process, I do see some familiarities with other parts of the ministry of Christ as well that take place within this miracle. The first part of the manner of the miracle is that we see that Jesus accomplishes this through the use of 
people. He uses people to accomplish the task. In other words, the disciples were involved in the ministry. They were involved in taking the bread and the fish and going out and distributing it to the people. Jesus needed his disciples. That's what he did in many different ways. We've already at this point in the book of Matthew seen where Jesus will send out his disciples two by two and spread them out, send them out into the neighboring cities and towns and villages and send them all over the countryside doing the same thing that he was doing, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and healing diseases and performing these miracles, casting out demons and so on and so forth. So Jesus was using his disciples to accomplish his ministry. He always does that. Jesus always, God always uses people to accomplish his ministry. If we look back in the Old Testament, we find that he uses people like, like Moses and Noah and Abraham. And he uses people like Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah. He always involves people in his ministries. And Jesus did the same thing involving them in this miracle as well. The same is true today. In fact, that's part of what we're doing here this morning. God is carrying out his ministry through us as he distributes to us the word of God. And and as we worship him this morning, as you go out into your workplace or school and you get opportunity to share the gospel with friends or to be a testimony and a witness to friends and community members, God is performing his ministry, doing it through you. You know, as we look at the book of Romans in chapter nine, it's talking about salvation And it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we come to experience salvation? It's through belief. Believing in our heart that Jesus is Lord and confessing him with our mouth. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But something's got to happen before somebody can get to that point, doesn't it? And that's what he goes on to say in the next part of the passage. He says in verse 14, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to, to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In order for people to get saved, they have to believe. They believe in Jesus Christ, confess Him with their mouth, and they're saved. How can they believe if they don't hear it? And how can they hear it if somebody doesn't proclaim it, somebody doesn't preach it, share it with them? And how can somebody go proclaim it if they're not sent out by the churches? As we go out and share the message of Jesus Christ in our community, there's all kinds of people that need to be saved. How are they going to be saved if they don't hear How are they going to hear if we don't tell them? We get to be involved. He also accomplishes it, we notice, through prayer. As Jesus takes the bread, the first thing he does, he takes this little boy's lunch, there's five loaves and two fish, and he holds it up before the crowd to see, and he just prays this prayer of blessing. And and another one of the Gospels mentions thanksgiving. So he prays this prayer of blessing and thanksgiving upon the food, And then he starts to hand it out. So Jesus accomplished this miracle through the use of people. And he accomplished this miracle through prayer. That's supposed to be part of our accomplishment as well. As we strive to accomplish different things for God and spread the gospel to our neighbors and to reach out in compassion towards people and be helpful to people, 
Prayer should be a part of all of it. Jesus, when he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, flipped over the money tables and drove the animals out of there, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Prayer was such a vital part of your worship and your belief earlier on. The apostles, when they start out with the early church in the book of Acts, right away it says that everybody was coming together daily and gathering around the apostles so they could gather around and hear the apostles' teaching of the Word of God. And they gathered together in eating and praying. Vital part. Later on, when the apostles are concerned and it's brought to their attention that there's trouble with the, the widows and taking care of the widows, they want to make sure everybody's taken care of well and fairly. The apostles put other people, deacons, in charge of this task. And the reason was so that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Those two things. The prayers to be a big part of our ministry. The Apostle Paul looked at, at different things that happened in his life as being answers to other people's prayers. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, and verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What he's talking about, is he's, he tells the, the Philippians in that first chapter, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Either I'm going to, he's in prison at the time, and he says, uh, maybe I'll be set free and have more time on this earth to minister, or maybe I'll die here. I'll be put to death. And he says, I don't know which one's going to happen. But he says, I know you guys have been praying for me and are going to continue to pray for me, so I'm pretty confident that that's going to result in my deliverance and I'm going to be set free. You know, sometimes we ask the question, God's all sovereign, God's in control, God works His will will in human affairs, then what does our praying really have to do with it? God not only wills the result, He wills the means of getting there. And so God determines not only what's going to happen, but that it's going to happen through prayer. It's like back when, when Abraham... Remember when he lied about Sarah? Well, he kind of told a half-truth because she was a half-sister. He lied about Sarah and said, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And so then a king took her in into his household and God started visiting that king and his community with barrenness and other negative consequences until the king realized what had happened. You know what God told that king? Abraham is going to come and pray for you, and then I'm going to reverse the negative consequences that I put in place. So God was already determined to let the king off the hook because he did it unknowingly. But it's going to happen through the prayers of my servant Abraham. So God not only determined the action, but he determined the path to get to the action, which was going to happen through their prayers. That's what we get to participate in. When we pray for ministries and we pray for people and we pray for circumstances and situations, we get to be involved in God's working His sovereign will in this world. And He's determined that that happens through prayer. In this miracle, we see Jesus accomplishing this through the use of people, through the use of prayer, and then a very unusual one, He also accomplishes it through poverty. He does not have a lot here to work with. He has very little. What will it take to feed this crowd? 200 days wages will give everybody a taste, but that's it. Jesus says, I'm going to do it for a lot less than that. We've got one boy here with a lunch. We're going to feed everybody with his lunch. He does it out of poverty. He does it out of need. You know, God likes to do that. He likes to show himself strong out of weakness. And that's what he's doing at this point. He takes just one boy's lunch and he does a great thing with it. You know, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble to birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. God takes the little things in the world and overcomes the large things in the world. Remember Gideon? God comes to Gideon and says, you know what, I'm going to use you to defeat the Midianites. The Midianites had an army of 35,000 people. God goes to Gideon and says, you know what, we got too many people here to go up in battle against the Midianites. Let's get rid of some of them. Tell everybody, anybody that's scared, because they were already outnumbered, anybody that's scared, you can just go home. And a whole bunch of people went home, over half of them. Got them down to about 10,000 people. And then God says, there's still too many. Take everybody down for a drink of water. And all the people that drink this one particular way, it was between those that would like bring it up to their mouth and those who would get down and lap it up like a dog. And I forget which way it was, but he says, all the people that drink this particular way, get to go home. The people that drink this other way, that's our army. And he comes out of there with 300 people, 300 people army against 35,000. And God says, now we're ready. <laughs> but God overcomes the Midianites with Gideon's 300 people, and he hardly used them. That's what God does. That Picking a king after his own heart. Picking the greatest king in Israel's history. He picks David, who nobody else even thought to call in from watching the sheep. He was the least of his family. That's exactly the same thing Gideon said to him. He said, I'm the, I'm the smallest of my family. My family's the smallest in the clan. And my clan's the smallest in the tribe. And my tribe's the smallest in the nation. What would you want me for? God says, that's exactly why I want you to Gideon. And you know what? The Apostle Paul even looked at that in his own life. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, talking about, a, uh, it said it was a messenger from Satan, uh, an affliction in his flesh, got some kind of a physical problem. Some people think it's eyesight. We really don't know what it was. But no matter what it was, Paul says, I had this affliction. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we always, we always think, boy, if I just had this, I could do a great thing for God. If I just had this gift or ability, I could do great things for God. If I just had this, these finances, I could do great things for God. If I just had this health, I could do great things for God. God doesn't need it. He doesn't save us because we have a great platform that he can use. God says, you know what? I can accomplish a lot more by taking somebody that's weak and recognizes their own weakness. I can do great things through that person. God says, I take the foolish things of the earth and I confound the wise. He says, look among you. How many of you are the lifestyles and the rich and famous? Not many. He says, not the rich and the powerful and the famous and the prestigious that I'm using in this world. It's the weak, the foolish. With that, I can do great things. And lastly, we see the result of the miracle. What is the result? The people ate and they were, the Bible says, satisfied. They were satisfied. They were content. They were full. You know, there's a satisfaction that is found only in Christ. Christ would at another time speak to the people and say, you didn't follow me just because you saw a miracle. You followed me because you ate and were filled. You followed me because you, you, you recognize that when you, when you ate, I satisfied something in you. I filled you. That's a huge problem in our sinful world. 
The Bible says that God has put placed eternity in the hearts of man. And man will look to satisfy that eternity, that, that hunger for something more, that longing for something more, that knowing that there's something more to this than what I have. And mankind will try to fill that void in our soul with things, possessions. We'll fill it with accomplishments. We'll fill it with pleasures. We'll fill it with addictions, relationships. We strive to fill that void in our life with just about everything than the one thing that truly satisfies. You know, we're like kids on Christmas. I remember Christmas would roll around and we'd pull out. We didn't have internet back then. So we'd pull out the old Penny's catalogs and Sears catalogs and any catalog we could get our hand on and start scouring the toy sections. And there was even times as I grew a little bit older and I'm looking back through those things where I would start to evaluate. That's what I really wanted last year. I used it for about two weeks and it just sits in my room. And I would start looking for something. What do I want this year that's not going to be just sitting in my closet two weeks later? Nothing satisfies. We get new things, they become the old things. The clean things become the dirty things and the rusted things. And nothing satisfies. It's the same way with, with passions and lusts. It's the same way with money. It's the same way with accomplishments. Nothing satisfies except that eternal being, Christ. That's what satisfies it, and that's usually what's the last thing that we'll go to to find that satisfaction. 